We're going to be reading from Mark 2, um, verse 13, the story of um, Jesus calling the man Levi, who's also Matthew. So let's read, let's read this little passage. It says that Jesus went out again by, beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I want to um, think with you a little bit this morning about one of what I think is one of the most important, but also one of the most difficult topics, teachings at the center of Christianity for us to get our head around, which is that of uh, religion and grace, religion versus grace. And uh, I don't think it's, it's really possible to overstate how important the subject of grace is to the Christian faith. Uh, many of you will realize this already, and even instinctively. Um, I read a story once about the great C.S. Lewis. He was at a conference on comparative religions where there were various experts um, discussing religions and major world faiths. And uh, in the discussion and rumors going on, thinking about the, the differences, what, what made Christianity stand out as unique among world faiths, and there are various options that were presented. Um, one, you know, they said it was incarnation, the idea that God has become flesh, which is, of course, at the heart of Christmas. And, uh, well, that idea actually exists elsewhere. There is something akin to that in other faiths. Is it resurrection? Is it that Jesus came back from the dead? Is that what makes Christianity unique? And of course, even then, similarly, um, the idea of people coming back from the dead isn't totally unique to Christianity. And apparently C.S. Lewis walked into the room and he said, what is the rumpus about? A word only C.S. Lewis could use, right? <laughs> what is the rumpus about? And they explained to him while they're trying to figure out what's, what makes Christianity so unique. And his answer in a sentence was, well, that's easy. It's grace. And I think he's right about that. I think... Uh, This idea of grace is at the very heart of our faith. And what I want to do is set up a contrast to you. On the one hand, we have what we can call religion. And I don't mean just a term to capture a body of doctrine. I mean a mindset, a way of relating to God, which is really defined by the word merit. That it has to do with what you earn and the just rewards for what you earn. And that basic system not only makes the world go round in every other sphere of life, but also is at the heart of every other religion. Um, It's embedded in the idea of karma. It's embedded in the idea of the scales of justice, which um, various religions talk about. It's there at the heart of every other religion. So religious mindset is the idea of merit. And in contrast to that is what Christianity teaches, which is the idea of grace, which simply means a gift. It means something which is opposed, in a sense, to uh, anything you could earn, 
anything which you could merit, anything which you could deserve. And so I cannot overstate for you how important the subject of grace is to the Christian faith, and it's revealed to us in this story. But it is also a difficult subject to think about, especially in our context, in our modern world. And I think about, I'll just give you a couple of reasons why I think this is, this is difficult to, us appro- to approach afresh and to feel the full impact of it. One of them is because we live in a world in which, in which we no longer believe in the backdrop of righteousness and of judgment. And it is only really against that backdrop that grace makes any sense. So we believe in a world which has been defined in recent decades by the influence of, of relativism, which is to say that everybody must do what is right in their own eyes. But there is no kind of absolute standard against which we're judged. And without that absolute standard, then we're left in a world where everybody's preference is right. And it's hard to feel the impact of grace when you don't live with the fear of God. And I think the fear of God is, generally speaking, something that's absent in our world. We don't live in a, in a world governed by that way of thinking, do we, anymore? There's no fear of judgment. There's no fear of hell. There's no fear of these things. And so how, how can grace amaze us when we don't speak about right and wrong anymore? Or at least when right and wrong is radically redefined. I think the answer to that and I'm speaking especially to those of you who would not call yourself a Christian. I think the answer to it is that you still know in your heart that there is, that you have a conscience. That there is still, even if it's underdeveloped, inside all of us there's an awareness, isn't there? And it can even become at times something like a fear. An awareness of an unworthiness, an awareness of a guilt, which is like a, a nagging or a voice in the back of your mind, of things you've done wrong, things you regret, a sense of unworthiness that can actually be there in us, even if we've sort of drunk the Kool-Aid of, of modern relativism. But another problem, really thinking about this from a more Christian point of view, is that we, we think we've heard it all before. When we talk about grace, it feels like a tired subject, because you know, you've heard the expression, familiarity breeds contempt, doesn't it? The idea that something is so familiar to you that you almost overlook it or tread on it or walk over it as though there were nothing extraordinary in it. And I think I'll just say a couple of things on that before we dig into this. One is that if that's our mindset, we may never have really understood grace. The grace of God is a scandal. And we need to feel afresh the scandalous nature of God's grace. And how it appears to us in this story, I think, is helpful in that, in that regard. But we also, I think, vastly underestimate how much we are still, even if we think we are mature as Christians, how much we can still be controlled by the religious mindset because it is the default setting of the human heart. It's what you return to almost automatically. And so even Christians who have grown in their faith for years, who understand that that Christ has done everything for them, nevertheless, you still relate to God. It's easy to relate to God on the basis of, of your performance, on the basis of how well you're doing on a, daily, on a day-to-day basis. 
And that can control your emotional life in terms of your relationship with Jesus. And I want to speak to this today. So here's what I want to do. I want to set up this contrast for you to think about religion versus grace. I'm going to show you four contrasts that seem evident to me even in how Jesus relates to this man, Levi. Here's the first. Religion looks for qualifications. Grace needs none. Religion looks for qualifications. Grace needs none. And here's what you must see. When Jesus called this man Levi, who, by the way, is also Matthew, the author of Matthew's gospel, he had two names. When he calls him, what you've got to understand is how deeply unfair this is. Jesus was growing in popularity. You can see it here, this crowd gathering to him. So there were a lot of people around him who admired him, who loved him. The crowds were interested in what he had to say. Levi was not among those people. And even then, if you broke down the crowd and looked at them person by person, I think you would have found within the, that crowd people whose lives could be described as righteous in a sense, that they were, they were seeking to live a life for God. There were people there who had, had been a bit observant in their faith. They'd gone to temple at the right times. They'd made sacrifices in the right way. They'd sought to follow the law. They sought to love God with all the, of their heart. And it's so interesting that as Jesus is gathering disciples around him, and you remember he calls 12 individuals who he names his apostles. When he sees this crowd of people who love him, and who also some of them were devout in their faith, he does not look at any one of them. He overlooks them all, and he calls this man Levi, who sat at his tax booth, apparently uninterested in Jesus and uninterested in God. It's a little bit like if you were part of a sales team at work and the manager says to you, okay, on Monday, you've got the weekend to prepare because on Monday, you're all going to offer up your best pitch and whoever has the best pitch is going to make the, this big sales pitch. And so the, the workers go home, they think about it all weekend, a couple of them stay up all night preparing in order to present something to the boss to impress him. And uh, the boss happens to be getting his home decorated that weekend. He's a decorator in. The guy's a little bit slipshod, arrives late, leaves early, just about does the job, sort of does half a job. And the boss, for some reason, completely unknown to anybody, arrives on Monday morning, says to his team, it's okay, I've already made my decision. Uh, this guy, Tom, who decorated my house this weekend, is going to be making the pitch this week. And you would, in that moment, feel the deep sense of injustice. I've worked my backside off to get this opportunity, and who is this guy, and he doesn't even want the job. Now, when you're looking at Jesus' choice of Levi here, you've got to understand a few things. I mean, what is going on? This is not about Christ's preference for the underdog, which is something that we really, really identify with, especially if you're British. We love the underdogs. It's why we cheer for our really rubbish tennis players and the likes and have been doing for years. And we love the underdog. We love stories like the story of Cinderella. She's basically the good character, but she's abused and oppressed and she ends up winning. Or you ever seen the film um, The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith? He plays a character called Chris Gardner, who was basically a, a bit of a failed salesman and is unfortunately led to the, the, the breakdown of his marriage. 
And uh, sort of by chance, one day he climbs into, he's, he's in a taxi with a, with a man who works at a stockbroker's. And you remember this is back in, I think it's in the 80s when the Rubik's Cube was new out. And uh, this guy's bought a Rubik's Cube for his child. And, and this guy, Chris Gardner, just through sheer talents, solves the thing on the spot, impresses the man so much that he's offered an interview. And you think you cheer for him in this film. The pursuit of happiness it embodies the dream that if you work hard enough, even the underdog can make it in this life. And so he does. And there's something that really resonates with the human heart. And you think, was Levi just that guy? Was he the underdog? This kind of unappreciated talent that Jesus just happened to walk past and see how amazing he really was despite all appearances? The answer is no. It wasn't that. It wasn't affirmative action. It wasn't like Jesus had to have a certain quota of tax collectors among his disciples in order to make things equal. It wasn't equality. It wasn't any of those things. It wasn't the things you naturally assume when you read this story. What it was, if I can put it bluntly, was it was simply unfair. Levi should not be a disciple of Jesus. He's a bad man. He's a bad man, and there's no question about that. Let me explain to you how the system of tax collecting worked. The Romans, who were the oppressive regime over the nation, would break up districts into these tax farms. And then they would sell the tax farm to the highest bidder, to a person who would guarantee them a certain amount of income from tax from that area, but they would also allow that person to make a profit from it. And so Levi, being a Jewish man, was guilty of two very evil things. One was betraying his own people because he was collecting taxes from the Jews to give to the Romans. He was basically the equivalent of, you remember, if you ever heard stories from the war when the, the Nazis conquered and trampled over Europe, you'd find in the towns and villages in places like France or Holland or, or wherever they had they conquered, you'd find individuals, locals, who were basically sellouts, who would be spies for the Nazi regime because of the benefits they would gain through it. And rightly, they were despised and hated by their own people. And Levi is one of those guys. He's a sellout. He betrayed his own people. He's an evil man. There's no question about it. And another thing that makes him evil because was the fact that within this system of tax collecting was the opportunity for such oppressive and cor- oppressive corruption that basically they could enforce the gathering of an unjust amount of taxes to enrich themselves as tax collectors. Imagine how angry you'd be if you discovered that HMRC was basically lining its own pockets and becoming wealthy. And you know, this was so common that apparently there was a statue in the Roman world to an honest tax collector, because he was the only one anyone had ever heard of. The rest of them were scumbags, and there's no other way you can think of them or describe them. So what you've got to understand here is, let's put this in modern terms. I think we naturally assume Levi is the victim, and we tend to think that grace works for the victims. Levi was not the victim. So if you're thinking about sex trafficking, Levi was not the trafficked person. He was the trafficker. He was an evil man, just out to benefit himself. If you think about people caught in money problems, he wasn't one of those sad characters in the betting shots, we've got a couple at the end of our roads, and you just, you know, they put stickers on the window so you can't observe, but you know inside there's a guy hunched over the desk just hoping this time he's going to get his lucky break, paying his way just on, on horses. And you think, Levi wasn't that guy. He was the loan shark sending around, you know, 
the brawn to go and gather his money from the locals and oppressing people. So he was basically an evil man. There's no two ways about this. And I want you to understand, listen, this is how the gospel works. There are no qualifications. It is basically unfair. It is simply unfair that Jesus goes around and he puts his hand on this man's shoulder and says, come and follow me and be my disciple. And friends, if you don't understand this, you haven't even understand the first thing about Christianity, that the heart of it is God's choice of people who do not deserve his favor and kindness. In Romans 9, Paul's talking about this. And he he describes it like this. He says that God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, it's entirely up to me and you don't get to question my choice. So then, Paul says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is the mystery of what we call election. It just basically means God's choice, his sovereign choice. And you see it at work here in the way that Jesus just breezes past Levi, points to him and says, follow me. And he makes a choice that has nothing to do with any qualifications, worthiness, innate ability, none of those things. This is a bad man. And friends, what this basically means is that if you can... If you can think of a reason why God called you, then that's not grace. I think we naturally think this way, don't we? We tend to think, wow, if such and such a person came to faith, you know, they're really worth it. Like, God could really do something with their life because of this raw talent, or they're just basically a good person. And the Bible has nothing to do with that way of thinking. It says if you can think of a single reason why God has chosen a person, except that he chose them, then it's not grace. Grace is grace because it is unexplainable. Because you cannot think of a reason except that God chose. And that's exactly what you see here in the way Jesus just walks past this guy, sort of puts his hand on his shoulder, as it were, and says, follow me. There's nothing worthy in you or in me. And if you think that sounds a little bit unfair, that is the scandal of grace. Religion looks for qualifications, grace needs none. Here's the second thing. Religion adds failure to failure, but grace breaks the cycle. Now, here's what I mean. This man, Levi, like everyone else in the nation, had grown up in this system of religious thinking in which you get closer to God by merit. That's at least how people, the common people often understood their faith, even if that wasn't the right way to, to understand it. And by definition... A system of merit creates winners and it creates losers. But the problem when you're in such a system, you recognize this immediately from your own experience, that when you start to lose at something, often that can have a compound effect where you get worse and worse and eventually you just give up. You ever played Monopoly with a child? You know, when you do that first round, when you get to buy stuff, and they just say it's not fair because they landed on like a station or two and they, all the good properties get snapped up. And in like the couple of first round or two, like somebody, somebody's going to give up, aren't they? Somebody's going to say, there's no way back from this. And they, you know, as has happened in our family gatherings, the board might get tipped up. Um, somebody might just storm out the room. 
you know, and this is true also in your life. You think about, there was always the kid, and it may have been you, there was always the kid at school who, like, a number of things could have happened to you. Maybe, maybe at one point, you know, prepubescent weight was, was piled on, and you thought, I'm no good at sports. And then from then on, you gave up any thought that you could ever be good at sports and thought, I'm, very, I'm good at eating instead. And so you can see how failure gives birth to failure. And also the same is true in academic work. You know, you maybe fail an exam once in your life for whatever reason, but that can give such a knock to someone's confidence that they then no longer bother even studying. It's like it doesn't matter how talented or otherwise they might be, the, the, the lack of belief that they could ever do better becomes self-enforcing. And a person enters into this vicious cycle. And friend, that's inherent in any system of merit where the winners win and the losers lose, that sometimes a person goes past a threshold, past a tipping point in which their losing starts to bring about more losing and they just end up in this, this pit of, of loss and of being a loser. And friends, this is exactly what happens in religious contexts, just as in every other part of life. You see, the law sets a high bar. It says this is holiness, it's up here. Holiness is to be like God. And within that kind of a system where people think that way, you have different personalities and different psychologies and different experiences that, and how people react to that. Some people see the bar and they think, yeah, I can do that. I'm pretty, look at my life. And, and so they have this inherent self-confidence. Others slip up now and then, but they think to themselves, well, like, this is okay, we can just patch it over, we can, we can set the scales right, and they just have this inner resolve to keep going. <laughs> And so you have different people who react in different ways to when they're in a system of merit. But there's always some people who, you know, whether they crashed through some experience or whether they were just um, had a moment of weakness or a moment of rebellion, they, they become utterly defeated by their own sense of failure and end up in deeper and deeper cycles of failure. And I think often the kinds of people who in the Gospels were labeled by the religious folk as sinners were often people who were caught in that kind of Cycle. Now, it wasn't that they weren't responsible. It's not that they're not bad people. It's rather that the system crushed them once they were caught in their own wrongdoing. And friend, I'm saying this because this could well be true of you. It may be the case that you made some terrible choices in life. A succession of them or just one that really, really hangs over you. And the sense that you've already failed gives birth to deeper and deeper failure in your own life. Until you discover that you're you know, like Levi or like one of these people at Levi's dinner party, one of these sinners, you are, you're beyond hope, basically. And so the sense of failure gives birth to self-loathing. It gives birth to more failure. It gives birth to the hopelessness of ever being reconciled to God, of ever being included, ever being welcomed into God's family because you are beyond forgiveness. That's the cycle of how the law crushes and breaks people, how religion breaks people. And friend, in that situation, you ask, well, what hope was there for somebody like Levi? Because he was consciously, deliberately, and persistently living a life that was offensive to God and offensive to his fellow man. And the only possible answer, because I don't think he could have dug himself out of that hole even if he decided to try. The only answer is the grace of God. 
that God can come into a life like Levi's and break the cycle of his evil and sin by offering him a free pass. It's like the dad who, you know, you're playing that Monopoly game. And the dad just decides to give away half or two-thirds of his properties to that angry child who's not doing very well. And for what reason? No other reason than just love, just compassion. In other words, the only way you can get out of the system of merit and the system of religion is when the whole system is set aside entirely and bypassed. And that's what happens when God draws near to somebody like a Levi, or actually somebody like me or you and offers us his compassion and his love, as Jesus does when he says to Levi, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Religion leads to cycles of failure. Grace can break the cycle. Here's the third thing. Religion makes you proud, but grace makes you thankful. The flip side to this cycle of failure that I've been describing is that some people do very well within a system of merit, don't they? It may be because they, they're just a more gritty person who has determination to keep going despite failures. It may be that they had certain advantages in life. They were raised better. They, were, they got a better start in life, a better upbringing. They may have a, just a more self-confidence, a higher view of themselves. So some people within any kind of system like this, they do really well. And it's true in world, it's true in education, it's true in sport, it's true in all kinds of areas. It's also true in religion. Some people just get, they get ahead in the religious game and they become winners in this game. There's a little moment in one of Paul's letters when he describes uh, his own experience of being in this religious game. And he, he, he describes his past life like this. He said, I, you know, whatever confidence anybody else has, he says, I've got more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, check. He says, I was of the people of Israel. Check. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the best tribes to be part of, apparently. Check. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. In other words, I was absolutely the most diligent man who ever lived when it came to the law. He says, as to zeal, which remember is a quality God loves in the Bible. He says, a persecutor of the church. Nobody could question my zeal for God, he's saying. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I had this record. I was... I was totally spotless according to the system that I was in at the time. Some people do really well out of this system of merit. There is an inevitable problem that comes with that, though, isn't there? And you'll recognize it in your own heart, and you know you've seen it in others. That when you do well within a system of merit, inevitably, along with that, comes the problem of pride, which is the great flaw in religion. It's expressed here when the Pharisees, this is the scribes of the Pharisees, start questioning. They ask Jesus' disciples, don't they? They say to them, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And you can feel, certainly here and all through the Gospels, you feel the pride bubbling up, don't you? And it's expressed in various ways. It's expressed as a complaint about the fairness of the situation. Because people who've done well within the system want fairness because they have earned their just rewards. 
So to give freebies within that system is, is basically goes against the laws of justice and fairness and equity. They look at themselves and say, well, you're stealing my, my victory away from me, basically, by, by, by honoring those people who failed when I actually won. Pride looks like that. It looks like the, the ability in your heart to look down on other people. And it's very evident in the way they label them. They say these tax collectors and sinners, and these are labels. Because in, in their heart, what they are basically doing is differentiating. They're saying, those people are over there. I do not belong to those people. I'm not among that crowd. I don't, I'm not one of the sinners. They're saying, look, I've, I've won in this system. I've done well. I've, you know, they're, they're sort of patting themselves on the back, as it were. Pride doesn't appreciate mercy. Because mercy is seen as a breakdown in the system. You know, when a person gets a free break, it's like, well, where's the fairness in that? You, know, you can see this, by the way, in, in, in certain people in, in a capitalist system. Sometimes people who've come from the poorest backgrounds and done well through the sheer determination, through sheer grit, through hard work, become the most right-wing zealots of capitalism, don't they? The most hard-nosed sort of Thatcherites, because, because they did it, and if they did it, someone else can do it. And they can flipping well dig themselves out of their own holes. I did it. So it's the irony, isn't it? Some people who come from the poorest backgrounds become the most hard-nosed about these things. And the same is true in religious terms. The more you feel you sweated and worked and, and just bled for your achievements, then the more you, you look down upon other people who just aren't trying hard enough. This is, this is the, the incipient pride that exists in the human heart. And friends, it's so hard to avoid. I think we all have that tendency to look down on others at some point, don't we? It basically boils down to a lack of repentance because they don't, they don't walk in daily humility of repenting before God. They walk in the daily experience of thinking, I'm, 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 really, I'm, I'm doing well. And Jesus, Jesus deals with this. Often, he deals with it by showing, showing us how superficial our understanding of our own hearts is. There's this amazing chapter in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 23, in which Jesus, he preaches a blistering sermon against religion in our hearts. He's talking to Pharisees particularly. But one of the things that he criticizes them of is he's saying basically your analysis of your life does not go deep enough. He says by your own assessment you're doing great. He says your problem is that your, your, your analysis of your life does not go deep enough. He says things like this. He says woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you clean the outside of the cup and the plate but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You're blind. He says, woe to you, because you're like whitewashed tombs, you know, a stone tomb that's painted white on the outside, but which, and which outwardly, it says, appears beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. He's saying this in effect. It doesn't, if you think that you've ticked all the boxes, you've been the best, most religious person the world has ever seen, the problem is what you haven't done is looked inside your own heart and seen the ugliness of your pride, 
of your self-orientation, of your judgment over others. You've not seen how ugly and offensive that is to the God who doesn't just look at your outward behavior, but who penetrates your heart and sees what is going on in the inner workings of it. The gospel comes along and asks the question, well, who, who is it that God finds favor in? Who is it that God accepts? And it's not the law keeper. It's rather the person who can say thank you. It's the person who can say thank you to Jesus, that Jesus has done it all to make it possible for you to be clean. And it was not based on your performance. It wasn't based on your works. It wasn't based on your record. It was based on his and his alone. And Levi gets it in that moment. Because there was no reason Levi should have been accepted. He absolutely should not have been accepted. But he is. Follow me, Jesus says. Overlooking vast numbers of people. Follow me, he says to that man. And he rose up and followed him. Here's the last thing. Religion makes much of man. But grace makes much of Jesus. When someone exceeds in the system of merit... What, what happens? Who gets honored? And the answer is that, well, the winner gets honored. We see this in the world all the time, whether it's the Oscars or the New Year's honors list or the promotions at work. Whatever it is, th- this is basically the, world, the way the world works. When someone does well, they get honored. They get, a, they get rewarded. And so they get glory for themselves. And Jesus, Jesus, again, highlights this. <laughs> when, he, when he criticizes these Pharisees in Matthew 23, he says to them, he says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others because they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, which is basically their garments, which, you know, the more ridiculous and, and uh, you know, the more <coughs> swinging and bits on their garments, the more holy they were. And so they made sure that everybody could see how wonderful their garments were to show how religiously devout they were. And he says... He says, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. And the problem is, there's a verse in the Bible where God says, my glory I will not share with another. So the basic flaw in the problem of religion is that as we do well in religion and we look at ourselves and think, I'm, I'm doing extraordinarily well, God looks at the heart and he says, that actually offends me deeply because you've made this all about you and you're no longer living for my glory. God's ultimate aim, friends, is that his son should get the glory. God's ultimate aim in his system, in his system of salvation, is that we should honor his son, Jesus. There's a very, very, very long sentence in the beginning of one of Paul's letters, the book of Ephesians in which Paul basically outlines the entire scope of God's eternal plan in history without taking a breath or putting a full stop. But three times in that description of God's saving plan, three times he keeps saying that it's all about Jesus getting the glory. He says things like this. He says that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In other words, he had a plan, an eternal plan to bring you into his family according to the purpose of his will. 
Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God's whole purpose was that we would praise his grace, not that we would pat ourselves on the back. He says, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we get something we don't deserve, an inheritance, he's saying. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So that Jesus will be honored. He keeps saying it again and again. The whole purpose that God has in salvation is not to honor us. It's to honor his precious son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you ask yourself the question, well, how does, how does Jesus get the praise? And it can't be through a system of merit in which the people who do well get the prizes. It has to be through this upside-down, broken, confusing, unfair system of grace in which the people who lose get his kindness. A little later in Ephesians, he puts it like this. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works. In other words, your religious labors so that no one may boast. There's something uniquely Christ-honoring about the fact that ultimately when everything is said and done, when we finally face to face with Jesus, none of us will be able to plead our own efforts And all of us will have to look at him and say, it was all you, Jesus. I didn't deserve even a scrap of your kindness and mercy, but it was given to me for free. And you ask, well, how does Jesus bring about even greater glory then in the life of somebody like a Levi? And I think the answer is, well, when he deals with those people and shows that grace can change them in the way that the law never could. Because grace can change them from the inside out. Changes you in the heart. It rewires your heart. It makes you become a a transformed person from the inside that then expresses itself outside rather than the person who's constantly trying to change the outside of their life but whose heart remains desperately wicked. So you see that, you know, in the way Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous but sinners because he, he wants to show that he's the great physician. He wants to show that he's only here for the sick person who realizes they're sick, who realizes they need Christ, not for the person who thinks they can fix their life. And so you look at the example of Matthew. What do we say about him? He was evil because he was a betrayer of his own people, the Jews. Levi Matthew. What did he become? He became the man who wrote the gospel, which of all the gospels is most designed to evangelize the Jews. How God just totally turned the tables on this man. Or he went from being this Levi the tax collector, this, this oppressive uh, loan shark man who was kind of scraping um, you know, and oppressing and, and, cor- and just uh, robbing the people effectively. He went from that to becoming this man called Matthew, which means gift of God. In other words, his whole life was an expression of God's generosity towards others. I want to read you a little, a little story I came across that just illustrates this. So centuries ago, a number of workmen were seen dragging a great marble block into the city of Florence, Italy. It had come from the famous marble quarries of Carrara, and it was intended to be made into a statue of a great Old Testament prophet. 
but it contained imperfections. And when the great sculptor Donatello saw it, he refused it at once. So there it lay in the cathedral yard, a useless block. And one day, another sculptor caught sight of the flawed block. But as he examined it, there rose in his mind something of an immense beauty. And he resolved to sculpt it. For two years, the artist worked feverishly on the work of art. Finally, on January 25th, 1504, the greatest artists of the day assembled to see what he had made of the despised and rejected block. Among them were Botticelli, Leonardo da Vinci, and Pietro Perugino, the teacher of Raphael. And as the veil dropped to the floor, the statue was met with a great chorus of praise. It was a masterpiece. The succeeding centuries have confirmed that judgment. Michelangelo's David is one of the greatest works of art the world has ever known. And I think it's all the more amazing because turtles don't have opposable thumbs. <laughs> Little joke from the 90s kids. Um. <laughs> the flawed block of marble was wheeled in, rejected by Donatello. We'll see what happens in the evening service. I think that'll be a bit quicker. Rejected by Donatello, chosen by Michelangelo, turned from a flawed and rejected piece of marble into something extraordinary that would bring about admiration for the centuries. In a sense, that's exactly what Jesus does with us. There's an amazing verse where Paul talks about this in his own experience. And remember, he, I think he forever lived with the self-consciousness of, his, of his, the evil that was true of his life prior to him meeting Jesus, how he'd hounded and persecuted and sought to murder Christians. And he, he puts it like this. He says, I received mercy. Let me just read to you a couple of verses earlier, actually. It says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It's a kind of inverted boast, isn't it? It's like at one stage he could have said, as to the law, I was blameless. But now he says, no, I was actually the worst sinner who ever lived. Because he'd understood his heart. He'd understood the problem of sin, which is the wickedness of the heart. But he says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Jesus saved Paul, he saved Levi. If there's any reason at all just to demonstrate that he can do it, and that he can do it in you, that no matter where your life has gone, no matter what pit you find yourself in today, no matter how hopeless you might feel, how far from God you might feel. In fact, it's like Jesus rolls his sleeves off and goes, okay, let's get to work. And he embraces you with his kindness. and He, he brings you into his, his family. And he says, you're my, you're my brother, my sister. You're, you're part of my people. And then he starts mending you by just pouring love on you and you keep failing but he just loves you back and he just keeps loving you and loving you and loving you and so a guy like Levi thinks well what was what did I have in my old life I was rich but everybody hated me and he turns his back on it completely turns his back on it and then he lives a life of no doubt 
living hand to mouth along with Jesus and the rest of them. But so full. So full of happiness. All of the wickedness that he was involved in before was as nothing compared with knowing that Jesus loved him. And he was transformed. He became obedient, as Romans puts it, from the heart. No longer a system of law which he had failed, but rather a passionate desire to live a holy life for the God who loved him, even despite his failures. That's the beauty of grace. Maybe you're a Christian here today and you feel like you've been struggling to relate to God. Christ would want to remind you he didn't choose you because of your loveliness. He chose you because he chose you because he chose you. And there's nothing you can do about that. Maybe you've lost hope because you think, well, I'm so far from God. Nothing could ever happen to me. Maybe you've never become a Christian. What place do I have in here? I can't change my life. I heard a man two nights ago shared a taxi with an Australian man who who asked me what I did. I said, I was a pastor of a church. I said, are you a churchgoer? He said, no, I'm too much of a sinner. And that might be the way you think about your life. Jesus just walks past and he says, follow me brings you in. Why don't we bow our heads and let's pray. It may be the case that you, you want to respond. The one thing that Christ's mercy does call for is not the, the gritty determination to change your life. It's not the resolve to just do better next time. It's the willingness to say thank you and to receive the gift which is offered to you for free. A person has to do that when they become a Christian, but also a person has to do that repeatedly to enjoy the Christian life on a daily basis. They have to start every day saying, this is, I'm not here because I earned it. I'm here because of your kindness. So I want us all, it doesn't matter whether you're not a Christian and you want to do this for the first time or you're a Christian who's been walking with Jesus for decades, We all have to make the same approach in which we say to the Father, thank you for the gift of your son Jesus who died on the cross to make it possible for me to know you. So why don't we bow our heads and maybe you just want to come to God and say thank you. I want to leave a couple of moments of quiet. Lord Jesus, we we want to come to you now. And Lord, we acknowledge that there's nothing in us that's lovely or that's worthy. Some of us, Lord, have failed in ways that have caused us to fall into those cycles of despair. We come to you and we humbly ask, Lord, will you allow us to understand your extraordinary compassion and mercy, the unfairness of your grace that welcomes the sinner home, that pours gifts upon us into our laps that we did not earn and do not deserve, that most of all adopts us into the family 
And I pray if there's anybody here, Lord, who has never given their life to you, but who recognizes, I need this, I need mercy. I don't need a system of try harder. I need, to, I need acceptance from the God who made me. Then I pray, Lord, will you just bring them into the family today? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.